0: If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant, the word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. give me this water so that i will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water jesus said to her go call your husband and come here the woman answered him i have no husband jesus said to her you are right in saying i have no husband for you have had 5 husbands and the one you now the one you now have is not your husband what you have said is true the woman said to him sir Am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would bless your word. That as we look at the interaction between our Lord Jesus Christ and this woman, that we would learn, that we would not only know more, but Lord, that we would be driven to act. That we would obey your word, seeking out others to share with them Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We come now this morning to the third in our short four-sermon series on outreach, on being ambassadors for Christ. We looked two weeks ago at what it means to be an ambassador for Christ, to have the great privilege of having the ministry of reconciliation. And then last week, we looked at what it meant to declare the greatness of God to a watching world. And now this week, we look at what it means to share Jesus. And this is an unusual task to take up, because on the one hand, this is the most basic part of the Christian life. To share Jesus does not require extensive learning or multitude of experience. In fact, it is something that new Christians are most eager to do. But at the same time, it is one of the most challenging parts of the Christian life. Because it is one of the most fearful things for us to do. We fear rejection. We fear embarrassment. We fear that we will fail God. That we will be unable to do what God has asked of us. And so this is something that we must look at this morning. Not because it makes it easier for us to share Jesus. Not because it gives expertise we need but because we must get past our fears to see God's command to share the Lord Jesus Christ with others. And so as we look at Jesus' interaction with this woman at the well, I would like us to see three things this morning. First, initiation. That is, that Jesus takes the initiative in this incident. That should not surprise us because as we have seen throughout the book of Romans that God is the initiator. He is the one who makes the first step. Second, we see confrontation. That Jesus engages with this woman and he engages her with patience but with perseverance. And then thirdly, multiplication. That the result of this incident at the well goes far beyond this one woman, far beyond this one day, to this entire town of Samaria, and perhaps is even felt in our day, as the work of Jesus Christ goes forward. Initiation, confrontation, and multiplication. As we begin then to look at initiation Let's remind ourselves of the, uh, the context in which this passage comes. This is important to us because the first thing that we notice about Jesus taking the initiative is that he goes beyond expectations, beyond what would be expected of him, beyond what we might even expect of ourselves. Now, Jesus had started his ministry in Galilee. If you picture the Holy Land on a map, Galilee is up in the northern part of the Holy Land. And later then, he had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. And Judea and Jerusalem are on the southern part of the map. They are separated by an area in between, which includes Samaria. Now, Jesus then had a well-known discussion with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee who had come to him by night. And Jesus had told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Then Jesus and his disciples went out into the countryside and his disciples began baptizing people after the order of John. And then we read in chapter 4 verse 1 that for some reason as a result of the work in the countryside and the fact that the Pharisees had learned of it, Jesus decided to go back north to Galilee. We see this in verse 3. He leaves Judea and goes to Galilee. And then we see this brief but important statement in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now we must not miss the importance of this verse because it is brief and because we assume we know what the meaning of it is. It is not true that the only way to Galilee from Judea was through Samaria. There are certain places in the world where you can only go one way. I don't know if any of you have had the distinction, I won't say pleasure, of being on I-10 in Louisiana through that gigantic stretch where there's only a bridge through the swamp. You can't get off. You can't go right. You can't go left. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of being stuck there during a traffic accident. We have in the middle of the night. It's not enjoyable. There's nowhere to go. Now, I understand this because I grew up on an island in western New York. There was only one way on and one way off. You went over the bridge, and when you wanted to come back, you came back over the bridge. Now, that's not the case here. The normal route to Galilee from Judea was to go east across the Jordan River and then to go around Samaria to Galilee. That was the route that was taken by the Jews, especially Orthodox, God-fearing Jews. There is no physical necessity that is happening here. In fact, the word that is translated here, had, is used ten times by John in his gospel. And in each instance, it refers not to a physical necessity, but it rather instead refers to God's will and purpose. Let me give you just... Two examples right near our text that I think will readily make this apparent. In John chapter 3, verse 7, we read, Jesus say, you must be born again. The word must is the same as the word in our verse 4, had. It doesn't imply that there is some sort of physical necessity for everyone to be born again. No, it refers rather to the will and purpose of God. If we go down just a bit further to verse 14, we read, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, this doesn't refer to some physical necessity, some necessity of circumstances that has to happen. No, instead it refers to the purpose of God. That's why it must happen, because God has purposed it. Jesus and his disciples were not following the GPS through Samaria. This was more about what Jesus had to do there. That's why he had to go through Samaria. We'll see exactly what Jesus had to do in just a minute. But keep this in mind. This is perhaps the single longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with someone in the Bible. This is a very important event. Now, why would Jews avoid Samaria? Why does this go beyond expectation that Jesus would go through Samaria? Well, the Samaritans were the descendants of a mixed race of peoples. They were not welcome in Jewish society. And this was more than an ancient form of racism, although there was that involved with it. No, instead, it was a theological view based on history when the northern kingdom was carried off into exile by the Assyrians the land was filled by the Assyrians with people from a variety of cities outside of Israel and they did this intentionally they did it to wipe out the distinctiveness of the Jews in their nationality and in their religion but of course not every single Jew was carried off some hid Some perhaps bribed officials so that they could stay. And as they stayed, they intermarried with these new peoples that had been brought in and created a new people, a hybrid people of Jew and Gentile. They had some aspects of the Jews, but they didn't follow the law of God. And they didn't follow the distinctives of Judaism as they should have. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. Because they were the ones who had corrupted religion. They had corrupted worship. They had corrupted the relationship with God. They were the embodiment of all the Jews had suffered to avoid becoming like. And so what we see here is Jesus going out of his way, out of his cultural comfort zone, we might say, with a purpose in mind. Remember the had in verse 4. It was not something that we would expect. Now we don't have to wait very long to wonder what purpose Jesus had in mind. John tells us that he came to a town called Sychar and he stopped there. And the disciples, we are told in verse 8, went off to find food. It is in the middle of the day, it is noon, and it is incredibly hot. So there is Jesus sitting by the well, waiting. He's weary. He's thirsty. We learn later in the text in verse 11, he has no bucket to draw water from the well, and that would make it even worse. Imagine if you were so-called dying of thirst with water right next to you and no way to get at it. Now, don't let the fact that this is Jesus in the scene change it. Imagine yourself being there. Imagine how miserable you would be. The last thing you would want to do is to talk to a stranger, especially a stranger who was hostile to you, who was unlike you. Does this start to take you out of your comfort zone? Often when we think of evangelism, we think of perfect scenarios with which We are able to share our faith. We think of times, perhaps, in which we would be standing in line at, say, a Chick-fil-A. And the person in front of us turns around and says something like, You know, I was reading in the Bible the other day that Jesus said he was the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. What do you think about that? Could you please explain that to me? Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't happen to me when I'm a -A. Chick-fil-A. The closest I get to that is my pleasure. You know, people don't initiate in that fashion. And so we have to understand that Jesus is here in a hostile place. He is tired. He is thirsty. This is not a perfect setup. Jesus is explaining to us that he knows evangelism is hard. And he's going to show us how to do it in a difficult context. So then a woman comes to draw water. Now, there are some important things that we can draw about her from John's description here. So not only is this in the middle of Samaria, which is hostile territory for the Jews, but this woman is coming about the sixth hour. Now, what does that mean? In Jesus' day, there were no digital clocks. There were no Apple watches. You measured time based on the sun coming up. That was when you knew the day started. And when the sun came up, that was hour one, typically six o'clock in the morning. And so the sixth hour here is actually our way of saying 12 noon. It's high noon. This is the absolute worst time to draw water. It is the hottest time of the day. And we can tell this because other than Jesus, no one is there. This woman comes by herself. As a matter of fact, most of the people in the town were probably asleep they're probably taking a siesta. You know, folks in Houston, before the invention of air conditioning, the way people escaped the heat was to go to sleep during the hottest times, and then they would wake up later in the day, and in the cool of the day, they would do additional work. This is still practiced in many parts of the world. That's how people beat the heat. And so this woman comes, and we can see that she comes now because it is the only time she can come. She wants to avoid other people. She is an outcast in a place of outcasts. She is not welcome among the Samaritans. She's not welcome among women. Just in order to live, she would have had to have been a very hard woman, able to face an increasingly hostile world. And so Jesus initiates the conversation with her. It is simple, but it is direct. Look at verse 7. He says, give me a drink. Now, we have to remember that there is nothing about Jesus that would command our attention. He looks ordinary. And his request comes to her directly. Now, you could imagine... Perhaps you have had an experience like this where you've had a task to do and there were people around and as you were going about your task, you said to yourself, oh, please don't let them talk to me. Just just let them ignore me. Just let me get this done and I can get out of here. I really don't want to get dragged into this conversation. Oh, please don't say anything. Please don't notice me, right? That's probably what's running through her mind. She can't avoid Jesus when he directly addresses her and says, give me a drink. Now, this request is actually an uncommon one. It's actually forward. Men in Jesus' day did not openly talk to women in public, especially women who weren't their wives. This was not a part of the social norms. Further, no Jew would ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. She answers as much in verse 9 when she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, we might think she's perturbed because Jesus is asking her to do something and she's rejecting him. But that's actually probably not the case. She knows that for a Jew to drink from a utensil of a Samaritan would make him ceremonially unclean. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They were Gentiles for that practical purpose. And so... She looks at Jesus as if to say, Are you crazy? No one would ever ask a Samaritan for a drink who's a Jew. And even if they got it, they wouldn't drink it because they'd be afraid of being made unclean. Now, it's clear from this that she does not want to make this connection with Jesus. She's saying to him, I don't need you. And I don't want to talk with you. Now, this is important. Jesus had to have this conversation. It was not an easy conversation. And if it was going to happen, he had to start it. She was not going to initiate. Next we see Jesus confront the woman. Now, confront is kind of a loaded term. When Jesus confronts her, he does so not in a hostile way, but rather in a determined way persevering kind of way. Jesus is not trying to defeat her. He's not trying to win a battle. She is not his enemy. But at the same time, he is not going to let her just walk away. Here again we can learn. How often do we look at others who do not know Jesus as if they are our enemies? As people to be warded off, to be defeated in a culture war. Jesus challenges us here to view others as people in need and to persevere with them when they want to quit. Do you see this? And so Jesus then begins using her ordinary conversation in a way to broach spiritual matters. He begins to get personal with her. She's talking about water to drink, and so Jesus begins to make a connection Now, notice how Jesus does this. It's not by some sleight of hand or trickery. No, she's talking about an obvious need, water for the thirsty. And then she interjects a problem with satisfying that need. She says, Sir, I can see you're thirsty, but you don't have a bucket. What are you going to do about this? How can you possibly solve your need for water when you don't have a bucket? And so what Jesus then does is he relates to another greater need. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is relating this need to another greater need. He's saying, in essence, if you knew your great need, you would have asked me for water. Now, she does not get it. She keeps going back to the physical, to the water to drink. It's as if she looks at Jesus and she says, what? You don't even have a bucket. Really? How are you going to help me with water? And then she perseveres on. She says, who do you think you are? Are you greater than the one who gave us this well, than Jacob himself? Obviously, that's not the case. And of course, we know with John, as we look at this, the answer is, yes, I am. I am greater than the one who gave you this well. I am the God of Jacob. But there's something interesting here for us to see. Jesus, in chapters 3 and 4 of John's gospel, has two conversations with two people who did not know him. One is a poor, outcast woman. She is completely uneducated. The other, Nicodemus, is an educated Pharisee. They could not be more different as people, and yet they respond to Jesus in exactly the same way. Both of them misunderstand what Jesus is speaking about, and they take it in too literal a fashion. And it makes no sense. She says, how am you supposed to give me something to drink when you don't even have a bucket? Nicodemus says, How am I supposed to be born again? Do I have to crawl back up in my mother's womb? What are you talking about? Now, what does this mean for us? It means it should not surprise us when people do not understand when we talk about spiritual things. You know, we live in a day in which biblical literacy is at an all-time low. We cannot expect more from people. You might have a conversation with someone and say, Well, you know, it's like Abraham when God called him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the promised land. And someone says, Who's Abraham? What's what's Ur? And what's a Chaldean? Who are these? What are these names? What are you talking about? Is that from Jersey somewhere? Tell me. You see, people don't know David, they don't know Abraham, they don't know Moses, they don't know the history of Israel. They don't know the story of Jesus. We cannot just assume that they know just about everything. And all we have to do is give the tiniest feather touch tipping point, And they profess faith in Christ. No, in our day and age, the work is much more difficult. Because we have to explain to them who God is. Who Jesus is. Who they are. What the Bible is. And so, what we see here from Jesus is that we're not to give up when it gets harder. Jesus doesn't. Jesus patiently pursues her. And so Jesus continues to explore her true need with her in verse 14. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see what Jesus does here? He explores with her, her need, in a way that bridges the gap. He explains that there are two types of water at view here. She knows that the water in this well will never do away with her thirst. She's painfully aware of it because she has to come every single day. So when Jesus is describing a water that will make her never thirst again... She says to herself, you can almost see the light bulb go off on top of her head. He's not talking about this wet stuff in the well. He's talking about something else here. And so Jesus tells her of this water that will never allow thirst again. And it's not something that you have to go and get. He says it is something that springs up. And that is a fundamental difference between a well and a spring. It's been described in this way. If you have a piece of property and you have a well on the property that you don't want, what do you do? You get a bulldozer and you dump dirt on top of it. End of story. If you have a spring on your property and you bulldoze over it, what happens? You wake up the next morning, it's wet again. All the dirt's pushed aside. It's bubbled over. You cover it up again, what happens? The next day, it's bubbled up again. It comes. It's not something you go and get. And so now what happens here is she begins to understand and we start to see her begin to open up. And that's when Jesus gets personal with her. Directly in verse 16. But there's a sign of it in verse 14. Over and over again we see John in his gospel giving us little clues as to what's going on here. Look at verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. Is there anything odd about that verse? Who's Jesus talking to? A lady. A her. Why does Jesus not say her? Jesus knows what pronoun to use with her. He knows his Hebrew grammar, his Greek grammar. I think what's happening here is Jesus is giving just a peek, just an insight to her. That he will then open up in a moment to say, I know what your home life is like. You're not here to get water for you. You're here because your man sent you to get water for him. I know what's going on in your life. And so this crack becomes a wide open space in verse 16. After verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, what she's doing here is she's starting to open up. We might even think that this is a sign that she was seeking after Jesus. First, she wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Then, she didn't understand Jesus. And now Jesus says, Go, call your husband and come here. And by the response, she makes it clear she does not want to talk about her personal life. Her response is quick, too quick, too short. I don't have a husband. Now, you know what happens when someone answers a question too quickly, right? Every mom understands this. When she asks one of her children a question, and the answer comes back lightning fast with no thought. And the answer comes back so quickly because the thought process is, I'm going to give you this. This is it. Don't ask me anything else. Let's be done with this. Please don't follow up on that. Can't we be done, please? Right? That's what she's doing with Jesus. And Jesus says to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So what Jesus is doing here is showing her he sees her true need. That her present life is a result of failed relationships. Of pain and sorrow. Of guilt and shame. And so Jesus continues to probe gently, yet persistently. He's showing her that her need is a result of her spiritual sickness. Now, he is not trying to embarrass her. He's not even trying to judge her in the sense of showing that he is superior to her, which he obviously is. He is instead showing compassion for her. He wants her to see her true need so he can provide the cure. How do we interact with sinners? Is it always a debate? Are we trying to score points against them? To show we're better than they are because we know Jesus. Are you learning from Jesus here to see how he is doing this? Now the woman then tries another tactic to get out of the trap. Jesus starts by getting personal and he is getting much too close to home for her. So she starts in verse 19 with a compliment. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. You are a brilliant man. How did you figure out that I have five, had five husbands? And then she segues into a theological discussion. You are a prophet. Now that I've got a prophet here with me, you're so smart, let me ask you a question. Let's talk about the worship wars. You know, we worship here on this mountain, and the Jews worship in Jerusalem, which is right. Which is the place to worship? Now, we should expect this if we are sharing Jesus with others. They will try to find a way to change the subject. Especially if they can do so by seeming spiritual. Make no mistake, she is fighting against Jesus here. Do not miss this. If an unbeliever would fight against Jesus, what makes you think they wouldn't fight against you? ...and by fight. Do you see this is not what we expect? There is no overt hostility. We might even describe her discussion with Jesus... ...as seeking... ...if we didn't know better what was going on. What she's trying to do... ...is to be relative with Jesus. She's trying to relativize theology. We might paraphrase it this way. Well, you have your opinion on religious matters, Jesus... And and I have mine. And the unspoken assumption is, how can we ever know who's right? We're just going to have to, have you ever heard this phrase, agree to disagree? Right? Let's leave it there. This is the spirit of our age. Anything to do with God is just an opinion. It's not fact. It's not science. And so, therefore, no matter how important it is to you, it can't have any bearing on my life. Now, Jesus responds with a patient, respectful pursuit of her. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, we have to understand what's going on here. Sometimes I think when we read this, we hear Jesus saying, woman, as if he's being harsh with her, sharp with her. He's not. I want you to imagine in the most respectful voice of a southern child. Ma'am, because that's what he's saying. Here we have an outcast of a Samaritan people. And Jesus, the Lord of all, looks at her and he says, Ma'am, a term of respect and honor. If Jesus can show respect to unbelievers, why can't we? Jesus shows her respect. And what he says to her is the things of God are not relative. He says, you, and the word you there is y'all, not you. He says, all of y'all worship what you do not know. Why? Because salvation is of the Jews. Do you see what Jesus just did there? He took a discussion about the worship wars, and he brought it back to salvation. He brought it back to a relationship with God. He talks about the father and who the father desires to have worship him. He's not going to have a geography lesson with her. He could have unfolded the scriptures for hours about the Temple Mount and why the appropriate place to worship was in Jerusalem and how God had promised to put his name there. And he could have given her Bible verse on Bible verse on Bible verse. But that's not what he wants to do here. He doesn't want to win this argument. He brings it back to her and her need and salvation. Now, she tries one more time to distract Jesus. In verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, this is her way of saying, let me paraphrase it for you. Well, anyway, we can't really know about this. They say it will be clear one day in the future. When Messiah comes. Have you ever had a conversation like this with someone who doesn't profess to believe in God or heaven? And they say something like, Well, we can never know this. We'll all just figure it out someday in heaven. And that's their way of saying, Discussion is over. Don't press the point with me. We can't really ever know. In essence, what she's saying is, I can put this off till another day. What's Jesus' response to her? I am He. Do you see how Jesus continues to pursue her? She gives him every opportunity to break it off. Every opportunity to avoid discomfort. But he continues to pursue her in the most gentle and loving way. Can you imagine what must be going through her mind? She's just said, Messiah will come who knows all things. And Jesus looks at her and he says, that's me. And now what's going through her mind is, Now I know why he knows I had five husbands. Now I know why he engaged me in this conversation. Now I know that he knows everything about me. And he's still talking to me. He's still pursuing me. You see, Jesus doesn't try to show her that he is superior in knowledge to her or in life to her. Although, again, he obviously is. He just continues to address her true need. The need she was not even aware was her greatest. Briefly then, let's look at how John describes the consequence of Jesus sharing with this woman. The multiplication that comes. First, we see Jesus encouraging his disciples to see the world like he does, to interact like he does. And then we see the result of Jesus' interaction with the woman as she goes out. So let's first look at how Jesus uses this opportunity to focus his disciples. There is this almost humorous exchange as they come back with food. They are put off by the fact that he's talking with this woman. The word marveled in our text could be translated shocked that he's talking with this woman. But interestingly enough, they had enough experience with Jesus that they didn't ask him why he was talking with the woman. Verse 27 makes that clear. They knew that if Jesus was having a conversation, or if Jesus was doing something, it was for a reason. Now again, there's a lesson here for us. When we read something in the Bible, especially about Jesus doing something, we would do well to try to understand the reason for it, not to try to explain it away. So then what they do is they ask Jesus to eat, but his answer in verse 32 baffles them. He says... I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, Jesus is very clearly to us because we have been watching the conversation. Talking about the work that his father had sent him to do to save sinners. That's why he had that whole discussion at the well. But they begin this conversation wondering who brought him food. They make the exact same mistake that the woman made. (laughs) They're too literal about what's going on here. And just as with the woman, Jesus uses their misunderstanding to make his greater point. He says, you're talking about food, and yet you look out and you know when the harvest is coming. If you want to, look out now and see that the fields are white to harvest, not with grain, not with wells of water, but with souls. This has direct application to us. Jesus is telling us that we need to look out at those fields. It is not just His work to share Jesus. It is our work to share Jesus. He's also clear that it doesn't depend on us. We are the reapers, not the sowers. We do not have the pressure of bringing about salvation. We just share Jesus with others, and we reap the fruit of what God has done. This is why the biblical view of the sovereignty of God, remember Romans 8, is so freeing for our evangelism. Instead of making us lazy, it spurs us on because we know God is already at work. So what does that labor look like? How do we enter into that labor? John shows us this in the person of the woman from the well. She is a new worker for the harvest. Look at what happens in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, what does she do? She goes out in the town and she begins to initiate with the townspeople, to engage with them. She is imitating Jesus. She is doing with them what he did with her. And what she's doing is, she is not doing this just because of her personality. Remember, she used to avoid others. That's why she went to the well at noon. And she goes and tells them that Jesus knows all that she had done. Now, this is remarkable. Because she goes and speaks to them about all the things that they already knew and they whispered about behind her back. She never would have wanted this disgust. Openly before. This is a sign that what Jesus does in the life of a redeemed sinner is true. God knows everything about you. And you know God knows. You are delivered from guilt. Delivered from shame. You have seen the grace of God and you want others to see that same grace. There is also a little detail that John gives us in verse 28. Do you see what she does? She leaves behind her water jar. It's as if John is telling us she has met Jesus and she knows she will never thirst again. She believes what Jesus has said is true. In conclusion, we see here in John 4 Jesus giving us a lesson in how to share Him with others. It does not require incredible amounts of theological knowledge. It does not require great memorization of passages of the Bible. What it requires is a love for Jesus, a knowledge of what Jesus has done for me, and a willingness to tell others that He can do it for them also. It requires a love for others that perseveres past distractions and arguments. We do not need to know the end of our sharing. We just have to be faithful. God will work His salvation, often beyond anything we expect. There is a story told of a Sunday school teacher who determined in his mind that he was going to directly share Christ with a young man in his class who worked in a shoe shop. And he could not steel himself up to share Christ. He walked by the shop several times, wondered if he should go in, wondered what he would say, and finally he just said, Oh, I've got to do it. And he walked in, and he describes it as the most miserable sharing of Christ anyone had ever done. What would be the effect of that kind of sharing? We might say it's not even worth his time, except for this. Do you know the young man was that this Sunday school teacher shared with? His name was D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelisms America, evangelists America has ever seen. When this Sunday school teacher was preparing to share Jesus, he didn't know he would affect the lives of millions of people around the world. He just knew Jesus had told him he should share Jesus with others. And he steeled himself up to do it. And sometimes, beloved, that's what you've got to do. You've got to convince yourself that now is the time, that today is the day, and not put it off any longer. Leave the results up to God. Our calling is merely to share Jesus. Let's pray.